Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so that you'll be able to keep up on a daily basis with our commentary, which we like to think is smart, conservative, and non-tribal. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's May 17th, 2018, and since all of the major players, the, the big names from the Weekly Standard at that summit at the Broadmoor, I'm flying solo this morning. So I'm going to talk about what, what I want to talk about. I want to talk about cultural appropriation, out-of-context Trump quotes, the one-year anniversary of the Mueller investigation, and the royal wedding. Probably not the royal wedding. But obviously, I want to start with that anniversary. One year ago today, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein appointed former FBI Director Bob Mueller to be the special investigator in the Trump-Russia probe. Seems like a lifetime ago. Mike Warren, who's at the, at the Broadmoor, Noted on Twitter just a little while ago, it's worth remembering the near universal sense a year ago today that Mueller was the right choice to bring the investigation to the right and honest conclusion. Yeah, that was then. I have a confession to make. Earlier this week, I wrote a piece about uh, Donald Trump's crab bucket morality in relationship to his lack of respect for John McCain and the, the, the impulse to tear down John McCain, to flatten the moral land case, I'm sorry, the moral landscape. And my confession is that I originally started thinking about that crab bucket analogy of making sure that nobody was ever going to be better than you. No, you weren't going to acknowledge any sort of heroism or virtue that everybody had to be brought down to your level. I started thinking about that in terms of what's been done to Robert Mueller, who is really an extraordinary man and, and, and everybody across the across the spectrum, including remember what Newt Gingrich had to say about Bob Mueller a year ago. But think about where we are today. And uh, Mike Warren at the, at the Standard has a pretty good summary of what Trump's allies are, you know, are now saying about this investigation, that the special counsel's office has no credibility. The investigation has gone far afield from its original mandate. There's been no evidence to show any collusion. Um, the indictments of former top campaign officials Paul Manafort and Rick Gates the latter of whom has since rendered a guilty plea, and the guilty pleas from former campaign advisor George Papadopoulos, former national security advisor Mike Flynn, are, they claim, proof not of the necessity of the special counsel, but of the corrupting political influence on Mueller and the FBI investigation, the FBI agents who began the probe. That um, Trump Tower meeting back in June 2016 involving Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner and Manafort meeting with a Russian lawyer claiming to have dirt on Hillary Clinton does not factor into whether there is a case for Mueller to continue investigating in their view. The discovery that one of Mueller's top FBI investigators during the 2016 election exchanged anti-Trump text messages with a lower and fellow FBI employee, however, became grounds for Trump defenders to call the entire investigation bogus. Never mind that Mueller removed that agent from his team not long after being named special counsel. So, you know, here is the, you know, the, here's the here's the reality check on all of of this. Uh, just just looking at the numbers that this is an investigation that far from being a witch hunt has moved awfully far and awfully fast. And Mueller has brought charges against 19 people and three companies, including a former White House advisor, three former Trump campaign aides, including the campaign chairman at the time, a prominent Russian oligarch, and a dozen Kremlin-backed trolls. In all, these defendants are facing a combined 75 criminal charges, ranging from conspiracy against the United States, bank fraud, 
and tax violations to lying to the FBI and identity fraud. I mean, you just look at all of these numbers. And then, of course, there are these larger questions. If there's nothing here, why have there been so many meetings with Russians? Why have there been so many shady contacts? And if those meetings are completely innocent, why so many lies about what happened and what was said? Why so many unexplained financial transactions that look like money laundering? And of course, the 500-pound gorilla in the room, what is this mysterious bond between Trump and Putin? What is going on between these guys? Why is he so reluctant to criticize him? You know, we don't know, and I think we constantly need to emphasize what we do not know. We don't know what's going on here, but you can certainly understand why people uh, speculate that that the Vladimir Putin might, does he have something on Donald Trump? And if that's the case, isn't that something that we really need to know about? Isn't that something on a bipartisan basis that ought to concern folks? And then, of course, this whole argument that there's no evidence of collusion, that there's no sign the campaign actually coordinated with the Russians. Uh, and you even see that, uh, you know, some of my colleagues have, have suggested that. But I think that reflects a pretty basic misunderstanding of the difference between the concept of proof, which Mueller would have to show a court or a jury or, or to Congress in an impeachment uh, in, in an impeachment process, and evidence of something. Because, honestly, unless you've been living under a rock or getting your news from Sean Hannity, there's tons of evidence, multiple signs, that something was going on from the context between the Russians and George Papadopoulos to the meeting in Trump Tower, which was arranged, as we now know, um, because the Trump folks were told that uh, they were going to get dirt on Hillary from the Russians. But I also think there's some other points that do need, do need to be made and that, that I would hope that other Republicans, and again, I, I am old enough to remember when conservatives and uh, Republicans alike would have taken the prospect of an attack on our democracy by the Russians very, very seriously. But uh, three points. Um, it, this investigation has gone on for a year, but that is really not that long compared to other probes. Uh, there have been other investigations that have gone on much longer. I'm certainly not suggesting that this should go on forever, but uh, there's nothing, uh, you know, one, one year uh, is, is not a signal for someone like Bob Mueller to begin to wind this down. And number two, look, if we acknowledge, which I think both Democrats and Republicans ought to do, the seriousness of this Russian attack on our democracy, then getting to the bottom of that attack, that attack is hugely important, is hugely important, and we should not put any artificial restraints and should not try to discredit that effort. Because if Bob Mueller does not get to the bottom of this attack, what happened, who was involved in it, and th then, of course, the question of whether we'll be able to resist a, a similar attack in the future, who's going to do it? Uh, is it going to be Devin Nunes? Is it going to be Congress? Is there any indication that anyone other than this special counsel is going to be able to get to the bottom of what I think would be an historic crime and, and certainly a challenge to national security? And finally, number three, um, and I'm not going to spend the whole podcast on this, but look, this investigation is a lot deeper and broader than any of us know. Any speculation that Mueller knows or doesn't know something is just that is just pure speculation. And it's clear we're at the stage of the investigation where he's connecting dots between the Russian issues, the, whether there was a conspiracy with the Russians, and 
the uh, and the complicated swamp of larger Trump sleaze. And let's be honest about this. If there was no Russia investigation, no scandal involving the Russians, we would be spending a lot more time talking about the conflicts of interest involving the president, his businesses, his family members, and the rather blatant abuse of the office to uh, enrich himself and, and, and his own private interests. Uh, perhaps this is the new normal that we barely raise an eyebrow about all of this. So when I hear all of this called a witch hunt, I, I think that the folks making the claim are not saying that they don't believe in witches. What they're saying is that they don't want this particular witch to be captured. Uh, but in any case, uh, I, I do think that that if if we just dial back and look at the reaction to Bob Mueller's appointment a year ago and then ask uh, why so many uh, f- folks have decided to, to join in the chorus to demean and uh, to, to smear him, quite frankly. Um, I, 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 I think that we would get an indication of just how much our political culture has been corrupted by all of this. But moving on uh, from that, um, now having, having beaten up on, on Donald Trump during that, that, that first segment, I, I, I do want to address this, this issue of the quote taken out of context because the media went hair on fire, and, and, and it's hard to get a you know, list all of the outlets that ran with this particular comment that the president made yesterday uh, when uh, during a, a session on sanctuary cities in California. This is what the president said. We have people coming into the country, or trying to come in. We're stopping a lot of them. But we're taking people out of the country. You wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people. These are animals. And we're taking them out of the country at a level and at a rate that's never happened before. And because of the weak laws, they come in fast. We get them. We release them. We get them again. We bring them out. It's crazy. The dumbest laws, as I said before, the dumbest laws on immigration in the world. So we're going to take care of everyone. Now, given the context of Donald Trump's comments about immigrants, you can understand why folks in the media and Democrats leaped upon that, you know, calling immigrants animals. But context is also important here. He was asked specifically, and that's not in the soundbite you just heard, but he's asked specifically about the notorious M13 gang. And, and this, is, this is not just you know, one gang among others. This is one of the most bloodthirsty, one of the most vicious gangs um, in, in, in the country. And so the argument is that, no, he's not referring to immigrants in general as, as animals. He's talking about m- murderous thugs. And, and, and quite frankly, um, I do think that, uh, you know, there are folks in the media who are now stepping back and going, okay, um, leaving out that context is simply dishonest. But but the debate that's broken out since then is also, it, it, I, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of one of these, you know, put your, your, your head on the, on, on the desk. Uh, do Democrats and, uh, and, and the left really want to uh, plant the flag on the mountain of arguing, well, you know what, it's not nice to call MS-13 animals, really? Is that really where you want to go? Um, wouldn't it simply be easier um, to point out that this, in fact, is what the president said? Now, if you object to 
the president's previous comments about immigrants, and they are well-documented, and they are well-known. That is fine. And I suppose that if you squint hard enough, you could think that the president was, in fact, indicting all immigrants. And, of course, he's contributed to that. Let's be honest about that as well. You know, when he launched his campaign, when he was criticizing illegal immigrants, he did go out of his way, as we all remember, to characterize them as murderers and, and, and rapists. But in this particular case, he seemed to very specifically be targeting these gang members. And I'm not sure that the folks who have leapt on that have done themselves any favors absolutely at all. And, and again, it's, 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 it's one of these um, over-the-top outrage moments that I think um, actually are counterproductive. Uh, um, speaking of which, and I want to talk about, I have a piece up on the, on the Weekly Standard right now about the cultural appropriation, because there are a number of, of, of reasons to think that the left might actually blow this. And by this, I don't just mean the midterm elections, which still seems um, up in the air, but might actually fail to uh, reach their their primary goal, which is to get rid of Donald Trump in 2020. And part of the reason is their their addiction to over-the-top smugness and the kind of cyberbullying that has become sort of endemic in, in some corners of the left. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, today's podcast is brought to you by the Dollar Shave Club, which delivers everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to get ready in the bathroom, and it is more than just razors. More than just razors. Dollar Shave Club, yes, that Dollar Shave Club delivers everything. Uh, shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that will make your tush feel tingly clean. Now, I'm a big fan of their amber and lavender calming body cleanser. And these, you know, in this particular time, you need anything that will calm you down. Never smelled anything like it. All of Dollar Shave Club's products are made with top shelf ingredients that will not break your budget. You will feel the difference. Plus, shipping is, this is part of the best thing, free with your membership. And here's a great way to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products. For just five bucks, you can get their Daily Essential Starter Set. Comes with Body Cleanser, One Wipe Charlies, their amazing butt wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month. Add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash weeklystandard. Uh, standard. No, I'm just I'm I'm actually just looking at a picture, uh, an article that I had set aside. The seven big things we just learned from the Trump Tower meeting testimony. Um, you know, for people who say there is just no evidence, no sign whatsoever. I mean, really, um, you can have evidence of something that is not proof. I just I want to go back to that because there there is so much. There are so many indicators. There is so much smoke. It is possible to have smoke without fire, right? But generally when you see smoke, there is fire. And even though you may not have found the fire, to say, but but there's no smoke is ridiculous. I, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I also, look, I, I have another problem with all of this, that I do understand the transactional nature of what, what's going on on, on the right. I, I get this. I, I do understand the conservatives who make the case, look, uh, you know, he, he, you know, all of these other negative things are out there. 
but we're getting the judges, the regulation, the tax cuts. We're getting the kinds of uh, policies the conservatives ought to be happy with. I, I do understand that transactional attitude. But what is the transactional um, justification for basically joining in this, uh, the, this, this chorus of obstruction against the Russia investigate? What conservative principle is advanced by trying to um, delegitimize the FBI or somebody like Bob Mueller? Wouldn't it be a smarter thing to say, okay, let's focus on these conservative principles and then let's let this investigation take its course. Let's find out what the facts are. Let's not leap to any judgment. Why wouldn't that be a smarter approach for conservative members of Congress and uh, for the punditry, but obviously uh, I'm in the minority on that uh, these days. Uh, speaking of ways in which the left can, in fact, uh, blow all of this, I have a piece up at the Weekly Standard um, with the, I, I, I didn't come up with it, but I like the title, Smug Alert. Woke progressives have created a permanent storm of superiority and conceit. Now, you know what the Smug Alert comes from, right? It's that's uh, that's from uh, South Park, one of my favorite South Park episodes. But um, I I start off by saying it's belatedly dawning on some folks on the left that maybe they need more than just uh, to, you know, hashtag resist Donald Trump to win elections. Uh, And people are wondering, well, what issue are we going to run on? Well, I'm suggesting that probably it won't be cultural appropriation. And I tell the story that I mentioned on a previous uh, podcast. This is after the Met Gala, and I'm sure you've seen the pictures of this, uh, the Met Gala, which was a celebration of, what the heck was it a celebration of? It's a celebration of of beautiful people and celebrities dressed up in uh, faux Catholic costumes, uh, the Sort of everybody showed up, you know, Katy Perry was there, Madonna was there, Rihanna was there. Uh, The Catholic Church, oddly enough, blessed the event. They were all in on it. Um, And then there was, of course, you know, some some controversy about whether or not this was offensive to Catholics from people who asked, I think, the reasonable question, can you imagine— a cultural event in which people dressed up in uh, Islamic uh, outfits in in order to raise money for the Met? And the answer, of course, is no. Uh, There's a Harvard law professor that tweeted out uh, that uh, the basic unseriousness of modern life is exemplified by the fact that New York Catholics are not rioting to shut down the Met Gala. But, um, oh yeah, Olivia Munn, who's uh, best known around where I am as Aaron Rodgers' ex-girlfriend. She showed up in basically, you know, full crusader regalia, all of that stuff. In any case, I wasn't actually offended at the time. Uh, I, I did think it was uh, it was kitschy. Sometimes it was funny. Sometimes, you know, it was tasteless. But I was confused by it because I was I was remembering that controversy over that, that teenager from Utah who went to prom wearing the Chinese-themed dress. And I'm guessing a lot of people have seen this lovely young woman. And she tweeted out a picture of herself wearing this uh, this Chinese dress. And, of course, uh, that uh, sparked indignation among the uh, the, the Twitter mobs. Uh, one one guy uh, tweeted out, my culture is not your goddamn prom dress. And that generated 20,000 responses, 42,000 retweets, and was liked by 179,000 users. And he followed up by talking about how this was like some form of colonialism, really. Uh, good news here is that despite this, uh, what in any other context I think would be called cyberbullying, this young teenage girl did not back down. 
She said, look, I meant no disrespect to the Chinese culture. I'm simply showing my appreciation to the culture. I'm not deleting my post because I've done nothing but show my love for the culture. It's a bleeping dress and it's beautiful, which was, I suppose, a, a kind of a win. Um, I, I found it really amusing. The New, the New York Times actually did a story where they talked to Chinese people in Taiwan and, and mainland China uh, and asked them, are you offended by this teenage girl wearing this dress? And pretty much everybody said, no, we're not offended. We're not offended at all. We think it's great. And then they started saying, so does that mean that we, when we celebrate Christmas or Halloween, that that's cultural appropriation? So this, this brought me back. I was thinking about this with the Met Gala, and I had a picture, the picture, famous picture of uh, Rihanna, who's dressed up uh, apparently as the Pope wearing um, a sequined miter. And I asked the naive question, could somebody just explain the rules about cultural appropriation and when we're supposed to be outraged, asking for a friend? And of course, and you kind of know where this goes, right? This was my turn in the uh, social justice barrel where people were saying, oh, this is, what a moronic question. How dare you ask this? What a bigot you are. Well, no, I, I do think that none of, I do think we need a clarification of these rules. You know, unless they're going to become so that they don't become these invisible tripwires. And it's not it's not self-evident what's allowed and what's going to bring the Twitter mobs down on your head. I mean, who gets to decide uh, which cultures you can respect, um, which cultures you can pay homage to, which cultures you can borrow from? I mean, why is there was there outrage about a burrito shop run by two white women in Portland, Oregon, but not, say, New York pizza? You know, why is it okay for celebrities to dress up as Catholic priests, but not um, a girl putting on a Chinese dress to wear to prom? So I asked, is there a list anywhere? Does anybody have the list? It would be really handy. I would normally suggest that you, you know, create the list of you can appropriate this culture, but not this culture. This culture is oppressed, but not this culture. And you could put it on a card. You could laminate it, but you shouldn't laminate it because I'm guessing that it is changing all the time. So, of course, I got... I got the uh, I got the the usual subject on Twitter, and uh, so it, it I was very interested by that piece in the in the New York Times over the weekend, um, which I'm which if, if you haven't seen you ought to go and uh, and and you'll look at it. Uh, Gerard Alexander warning uh, about the backlash to progressive smugness and intolerance, citing things pretty much along these lines saying, I'm not sure that liberals fully understand how obnoxious all of this looks and, and how you keep demanding that people keep up with all of the changes in social justice and the politics of victimization, that liberals have gotten far out ahead of their fellow Americans but are very quick to criticize those who haven't caught up with them. And then here's a, a passage from his article that I quote. Within just a few years, many liberals went from starting to talk about microaggressions to suggesting that it is racist even to question whether microaggressions are that important. Gender identity disorder was considered a form of mental illness until recently, but today anyone hesitant about transgender women using the ladies' room is labeled a bigot. Liberals denounce cultural appropriation without, without, in many cases, doing the work of persuading people there's anything wrong with, say, and then I, the, the, I, he mentions the same uh, examples I mentioned, Chinese, you know, the, the girl wearing the Chinese dress uh, the and the burrito restaurant. And, of course, his piece wasn't received that well. You know, I think it's pretty obvious that a lot of us folks on the right have been engaging in a lot of introspection and asking tough questions, but 
Uh, I don't sense that there's that much willingness on in certain corners of the progressive movement where these, uh, what I call the ritualistic performance, uh, performance art of the woke Twitter mob has become at least as much self-therapy as, as, as it has become a political weapon. So I'm offering some modest and unwelcome advice to folks on the left. If they actually want to win elections, maybe you should start beginning to think about persuading people rather than bludgeoning them over the head with your smugness. Because a bit of common sense and civility could go a long way to changing hearts and minds rather than alienating them. And I'm more and more convinced that even after what happened in 2016, there are a lot of folks on the left that still don't get that yet. So uh, that piece is that piece is up, and I expect that I will get my second turn in the social justice barrel as a result. Hey, uh, thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast today. Sorry about the... Uh, the solo flying alone aspect. Uh, We'll be back again tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.